What is a virus? Why are they important? Viruses can cause disease and mortality, and they also significantly influence ecosystem ecology and environmental chemistry. Today we discuss viruses and their role in biogeochemical cycles and agricultural systems with Dr. Joanne Emerson from UC Davis. I'm your host, Jackie Shea. And I'm Morgan Quayle. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Today we have with us Dr. Joanne Emerson, a researcher at the University of California, Davis. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Broadly speaking, what is your research topic? Yeah, so I'm mostly interested in viruses in soil. And so we think a lot about viruses that infect us, right? We get sick, we get a cold, that's not super ideal. Um, but viruses are super abundant in soil and we're really interested in who they are and what they're doing. So I think that a lot of uh, people, I mean, including myself, it took me a really long time to understand what exactly a virus is. I, you know, I, for a while I thought it was a bacteria that's just small. Um, but I, you know, what, can you enlighten us a little bit about what makes viruses different than anything else? Yeah, great question. So uh, viruses are, first of all, they're not alive. Um, they are basically nucleic acids, so DNA or RNA inside a protein coat and they rely on host cellular machinery for replication. So the deal is, you know, viruses, yes, they can infect us, but they can't live by themselves. They rely on us or another kind of host, like for example, in soil, the host might be bacteria or fungi. Uh, so they rely on those hosts in order to replicate. So what does it mean for a virus to use host cellular machinery? It sounds like the matrix. When viruses need to replicate, they utilize host's DNA or RNA replication processes. In other words, they hijack the proteins used to replicate genetic material in the host. It's really kind of crazy, sort of sci-fi. Like you, like they sort of just are in the soil, moving around, and then they find some sort of other microbe, some sort of bacteria or fungi, and then they just cling on and insert themselves into them? That's exactly right. Yeah, so basically they're, they're clinging on on the outside, and then they are inserting their nucleic acid into the host. So typically, it's not the entire virus itself that's going inside the host, but it's just the nucleic acids, which, are, which is basically the viral genome. And so that's enough for the virus to start replicating. So what sort of questions are you asking about these viruses in the soil? Yeah, we're really interested um, from an ecological perspective. And so what that means is that we're really interested in sort of what are the environmental impacts and what are the impacts that the viruses have on the hosts. And so more specifically, we know that bacteria, for instance, are responsible for biogeochemical cycles like the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle. Um, and so, for example, if you're bringing CO2 from the atmosphere, building it into complex carbon, the microorganisms are responsible for a lot of that. And what we want to know is what are the viruses doing? So if the viruses are infecting these microorganisms that impact the carbon and nitrogen and other cycles, um, what's the impact that the viruses then have on the biogeochemical cycles? Uh, so I'd say it's viral impacts on microbial ecology and biogeochemistry. And in the longer term, we'd really like to know how these uh, different impacts at the microbial scale are impacting plant productivity. Uh, so we mostly work in agricultural systems at this point. Microbes use carbon dioxide, CO2, and transform it into usable carbohydrates like sugar through photosynthesis. 
Similarly, microbes also use nitrogen and break it down into ammonia that gets recycled back into the ecosystem for other organisms like plants to use. This is biogeochemical cycling, and it's important in ecosystem function. Now, imagine a virus as a predator that kills some microbes responsible for these cycles. This would affect agricultural systems directly because the plants need ammonia as a basic nutrient, and without these microbes, they would not have what they need to survive. Currently, we do not know how these viruses are impacting these biogeochemical cycles, and this is the question Dr. Emerson's work aims to answer. So you're talking about how these viruses are, you know, they live within us, they live within the soil, but when we hear virus, we think of, you know, the flu or the cold. But how is it different? So you touched a little bit on the idea that they're different, but what is it that makes them so different, so unique in the soil? Like, how are they living in that environment when they normally need a host? Yeah, so that's a good question. And so um, the deal is that that fundamentally they're actually not all that different just in terms of the structure. You know, they still have a protein coat. They still have nucleic acids. Um, the difference, I would say, is is probably more from the perspective of, of human beings, right? So because they're not infecting us, they're not scary. But from the perspective of a bacterium, that's a scary thing. You sure don't want to be running into a virus, uh, not, not just because a virus will infect you, but if you are a bacterium and you're a single cell and you get infected by a virus, you don't have the whole rest of your body to take care of the infection. You're done. Um, so I'd say that's sort of uh, one of the fundamental differences in terms of thinking about them from the perspective of ecology as opposed to sort of from a more human-centric perspective. But certainly they're doing essentially the same thing. They are infecting uh, bacteria, fungi, plants, just like they would infect us. So I know that we have an immune system, an adaptive immune system that can take care of these and clear these. And I know that bacteria don't necessarily have the, quote, immune system that we have, unquote. But like, what is that? immunity and how do they rid themselves of bacteria or sorry viruses Viruses, yeah Um, so so that's another great question for anybody who has heard of CRISPR Cas9 the gene editing tool that um, was developed directly from a pre-existing biological mechanism within bacteria and in fact mostly within archaea as well and so CRISPR Cas9 was originally derived from what we call the CRISPR antiviral defense system, or um, it's more anti-mobile uh, genetic elements of which viruses are, are some. So the deal is that the bacterium, in a super cool fashion, is going to retain a piece of viral nucleic acid if it recognizes an infection. So it's literally going to take a piece of the viral genome, a small piece, and stick it into its own genome. So it, the bacterium or the archaean, is retaining a piece of the virus. Uh, and then that means that the next time maybe this virus's brother, who is part of the same population, which has the same sequence, is going to try to infect this bacterium. They have a record that says, aha, you're a virus. This looks exactly like what I've seen before. I'm going to chop up your nucleic acid. So that's one example of the uh, type of defense mechanism that that bacteria and archaea have. That's really cool. We've actually hijacked that machinery and use it for <laughs> yeah. genome editing right now. <laughs> sort of an example of like... Um kind of, you know, defensive immunity, sort of like um, antagonistic interaction. But I, with this uh, nutrients uh, cycling in the soil, that almost sounds like something that could be a more positive interaction. So are there examples that you know of these viruses that are having positive interactions with these microbes in the soil? 
Yeah, so uh, this brings us a little bit into different viral replication strategies. Okay, so one viral replication strategy, which is most of what I've been describing so far, is called the lytic cycle. And so that's where the virus infects and you're immediately going to start building progeny viral particles uh, and then you're going to lyse the host cell. So you're going to break open that host cell to release new viruses. But another kind of replication strategy is called the lysogenic cycle. And that is um, a cycle whereby it sort of starts the same. The virus injects its nucleic acid into the host. But typically for the lysogenic cycle, you're actually going to have the viral genome maintained as part of the host chromosome. So the viral genome gets inserted into the host and then the virus is able to replicate passively within the host during host cell division unless and until there's some kind of signal for the virus to be released from the host cell chromosome and undergo the lytic cycle. So when we're thinking about these two different replication strategies, they can have really uh, different kinds of ecological impacts. So lysis, of course, you've got host mortality, um, and that can have you know, implications for carbon cycle for the particular hosts that are you know, doing those different processes. But the lysogenic cycle can potentially allow for niche expansion for the host if you add a particular gene of interest, for example. And there are a lot of different mechanisms by which a gene of interest can be transferred from one host to the next via a virus. So I'd say um, in terms of potential beneficial viruses, there is the potential to allow for host niche expansion. Um, and I'd, I'd be happy to give some other examples. I have a couple specific examples if we want to go there. Well, yeah, I was, <laughs> I, yeah, I think examples are amazing. And I was wondering if you had an example of a, one of, like you were saying, a specific gene or gene of interest that a host could benefit from. What might be an example of, um, you know, gene? I know that like genes have funny names like <laughs> CR1 or whatever, but like right. what does it do? I guess that would be a, a fun sort of host addition. <laughs> right. Okay. So so I think there are a couple of ways of answering that question. The first is if you're in the lysogenic cycle, it's just, it's kind of like the nature of the game. It's sort of whatever is horizontally transferred. Um, so I don't have necessarily a specific example there, but what I do have a specific example of or what I would call direct viral impacts on biogeochemistry. This isn't actually benefiting the host, but um, it is a viral gene that would ostensibly have no business being in a virus. So the classic example is not in soil because soil is, is a relatively new field for viral ecology. So the classic example is in marine systems, whereby viruses that infect marine cyanobacteria, so these cyanophage, are, have a, a gene or genes involved in photosynthesis. Okay, so we've learned earlier in this podcast that viruses don't metabolize. They rely on host cell machinery for replication. So what on earth is a virus doing with a photosynthesis gene? It's certainly not photosynthesizing. What it's doing is expressing that gene during the infection cycle because the host is sick, right? The host is like on its way to death by way of viral infection. And so the host can't photosynthesize properly. But the virus can then express a gene that plugs a host metabolic bottleneck to then continue the photosynthetic cycle just enough for the virus to finish replication. So the idea is that the virus is actually expressing, expressing a gene that impacts the carbon cycle, right? Photosynthesis. Wow. It's like holding its hand on the way to death. <laughs> it's kind of morbid, That's, but beautiful at the same time. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of like that classic death image with the big 
you know, whatever, scythe. scythe, that's yeah. what it's called. You're like kind of walking you to death and you're like trying to accept it as it's happening. Grim Reapers just pulling <laughs> Totally Grim Reaper status. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of creepy brilliant. It's true. Creepy brilliant. Yeah, exactly. I actually, um, off the note of creepy, but brilliant, um, but more into like how you're, how you're studying these organisms. How does one collect and study these viruses? So normally when you collect a sample, we're like, oh, it's a living tree. You just take a clip off of it and it's, you know, we can, we can um, culture that in a lab or tissue. Can you grow these in a Petri dish like bacteria? Um, what's a day in the life as a viral biologist? And one more thing I want to add is like, are there smells? Are there, are there colors? <laughs> like, what is it that you see, smell, hear, feel when you're in lab? Great. Uh, so, so, okay, so I would say that you certainly can grow viruses, um, and the way that you grow viruses is by culturing a host and then adding the virus to the host. So again, because the viruses rely on host cell machinery for replication, you cannot culture a virus in isolation without its host. Culturing is a technique to grow microbes by creating an environment filled with food and comfortable conditions for, for these microbes. Think of it like your home. You have a temperature control, food in the fridge, and a place to sleep. Culturing is like making a comfortable home for microbes in the lab, but we do not know how every microbe likes to live, which is why many microbes cannot be cultured. Um, so the sort of second follow-on to that, though, is that as we know in the microbial world, um, the, the classic example is like 99% of microbes can't be grown in culture. I don't, I don't believe that it, that's actually true. I think it's more 99% of microbes are very difficult to grow in culture. And there are definitely groups that are actively working on, on doing that. But I would say um, that, yes, we are, we are doing that sort of thing as sort of a side project. But what we mostly focus on is a metagenomic approach. And so that's where we're going out into an environment, in this case soil, and sequencing all of the DNA that we get back. And there are a couple of different ways that we can do that, the first of which is doing literally what I just said. We go to the soil, we sequence all of the DNA that we get back, but at that point, the vast majority of what we're seeing is going to be bacterial, archaeal, and possibly fungal DNA. So we're going to have to go on the computer in that case and mine, uh, sort of look for the viral sequences in those data sets. And that can be a useful way of doing things. We've certainly done it that way, but it means that you're wasting a huge amount of the data. So the other way to do it is to uh, go to soil, add a buffer, and then you can start to think about size fractionation. So viruses are way smaller than bacteria and other organisms, and so what you're going to do is you're going to first spin down your soil with the buffer so that your viruses are going to be in the supernatant, and most of what you have in the soil uh, is going to be soil and bacteria, so you remove that. Then you put the supernatant through a 0.2 micron filter, it's going to remove the bacteria, and then you can concentrate the viral particles and extract DNA directly so that you have a viral size fraction metagenome or a virome, and then it's computational analysis to see who's there and what they're doing. Amazing. That's really cool. I'm pretty so into it. You're, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting into it just yeah. talking to you. So do you use, you use a combination of those to sort of try to get the best view of what's actually going on in the soil? That's exactly right. And I think uh, some soils are more amenable to this approach where you're adding a buffer and purifying the viruses. Some are more amenable to that than others. And so sort of the backup plan is to do what we would call the bulk soil metagenome. But there are also advantages to having the bulk soil metagenome, right? You have information about the hosts. So yes, a combination of approaches is definitely where we're going right now. That's really cool. Talk about interdisciplinary, right? <laughs> 
We try. <laughs> so you were mentioning earlier that you use these in the context of agricultural systems. So what are some things that you've been able to find in these interactions um, in those systems? Yeah, good question. So I'm, I'm relatively new, I have to admit. I've been in my position as an assistant professor at UC Davis for a year and a half. Woo! Woohoo! I know, super fun. <laughs> and so um, when I uh, started at UC Davis is when I started working in agricultural systems with my group. So our data are very preliminary at this point in terms of agricultural soils. And what we've been focusing on at this point, it, just to make sure our methods are working, is piggybacking on pre-existing studies. So there are folks who are agricultural experts, soil scientists, scientists, microbial ecologists who have been working in these systems for decades, and they've got really sophisticated, beautiful experiments set up, and we can just go jump right in and collect a soil sample from their experiments and see what viruses are there and how they're changing over the uh, types of different samples that, they're, that these other folks are collecting. And so as one example, we've gone into a biochar amended field site. And so the idea is biochar is a biological material that's burned at really high temperatures and it's essentially kind of like charcoal. Mm -hmm. So folks bury this in the ground and it's meant to help with carbon sequestration. Mm -hmm. So reducing the amount of carbon that's then uh, converted into CO2 and goes back into the atmosphere. Um, and so and that's a common practice in agriculture? It is, the, it is and it isn't. It's something that's, um, I'd say, common in the sense of people are very much aware of it and trying to understand whether or not and under what conditions it's useful. So certainly, I mean, it's, it's commonly researched, <laughs> I would say. And it's also a good thing because it's, um, it's, it's in this sort of sustainable agriculture side of things where if you have, for example, your... Uh, an almond farmer and you have a whole bunch of extra almond shells. If you convert those almond shells into biochar, that's a way to kind of reduce waste and uh, give back to the system for a more sustainable approach. So yeah, there's definitely interest um, in, in figuring out how good biochar is at actually sequestering carbon and nutrients. And sort of beyond that is, is a little outside my area of expertise in terms of biochar, except I will say that the jury is still out in terms of how effective it is and under what conditions. Um, but, but for us, we were really interested in hopping on this study and trying to see how the virus has changed with different kinds of biochar amendments. And the funny thing is, you know, the experiment was all nicely designed. We had three different kinds of biochar, a control with no biochar. We collected samples about uh, four months after the biochar was amended so that it would be really well into the soil. Then we collected samples again after tomato planting a few months after that, and we compared all the samples. We were expecting to see differences in biochar, differences in the nitrogen amendments and fertilization. Far and away, the signal that we saw was a difference with and without plants, which is kind of like no duh, but we just weren't expecting that. So there was no obvious signal from the different biochar, no obvious signal from differences in nitrogen amendments, and a very clear signal of a difference in viral community composition before and after you add tomato plants. So what do you think that means? Yeah, I think that um, the tomato rhizosphere or plant rhizospheres in general are recruiting microorganisms to the rhizosphere. So that's known. It's known that um, uh, rhizosphere recruitment of, of microbes. But then this means there's also a recruitment of the viruses that infect those microbes. And so my, my hypothesis would be that's an indirect effect, right? The viruses have to go where the hosts are going, and the plants are pulling the hosts to them. That's wild. So Great. This, this is <laughs> amazing. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, these, these huge nodules forming, and then just like 
imploding on themselves because these viruses come in and just like wreak havoc. That's what's going through my mind when you're describing this. All because of what's in the environment. But actually leads me to another question. Um, and a little bit of it is a naive question, so we'll see where this takes us. Um, how long or how fast do certain virus activities shape or change the environment? So we just talked about how they do it, but like what's the timeline look like? Um, and are there actually like, is there a, a timeline that essentially like invasive species might be introduced or is that even a thing? Like, are there invasive viruses? Like, is there a virus on the East coast that survives in a different environment? Cause there's a different plant that isn't on the West coast, but when it comes here, it wipes out all these bacterial colonies that help these plants grow. Is that even a thing? I, I don't know much about, I'm a big bacterial and, and yeast yeah. person. So I'm actually a microbiologist. So I have no idea what this is like. So it's kind of a new fun field. Yeah. Um, so I would say, right, it's a new fun field to us, too. Um, okay, we, good. So not we, the only one. Yeah, no, this is, these are not naive <laughs> questions. These are questions that we in the field would love to be able to answer, but it, it's the field is in its infancy, and so we really actually don't have a good answer for what happens in terms of invasive viral species versus not. But um, one, you know, something that gets a little bit at, at that question is that in this biochar study that I mentioned, we do see a huge change in viral community composition pre and post planting. However, within that set of viral communities that are changing, we have a number of different plots that we've collected. And although far and away the big signal is that the viral communities are changing, there's some clear evidence that within an individual plot you have some of the viruses that are still the same. So we haven't disturbed the system to the point at which we've completely wiped out that original viral signal. But what I wonder is how disturbed does a system have to be for you to actually do that, right? We're still seeing the spatial heterogeneity, or at least a hint of it. And how much would we have to disturb the system to see something different? And I think that's sort of in the vicinity of your, what you're getting at with invasive species. Um, and yes, I mean, I would think certainly if you've got a virus that's capable of surviving in the ecosystem that you have, um, and it's capable of uh, being better adapted to that system, let's say, than the, the viruses that are already there, absolutely, I think the virus could take over just the same as any other kind of organism could. Yeah. What would a world without viruses look like? Oh, I would be jobless. <laughs> that's that's definitely like the only thing that's important in terms of answering that question. No. <laughs> um, what would a world without viruses look like? That's such an interesting question. I, I honestly, I've never thought of it. Um, Let's see. Okay, we well, can so work what? Through it. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's work through it together. So, so viruses, I'd say, as ecosystem components, their their job sort of is potentially to keep the system in check. Okay, so viruses. If you're thinking of what bacteria are doing, viruses are helping to force bacteria to evolve, right? To evolve to be resistant to the viruses, to be evolve to be more fit in different kinds of ecosystems. So, so I mean, this is super pie in the sky. I don't know if this would actually yeah, happen, it. but it's possible that, you know, it would be interesting to see how evolution might be different in the absence of viruses. Wow. It's hard to remember that they're not alive. Yeah, we keep talking about this, like, they have, <laughs> they, they have, yeah, they have. They, they're not a they. They're doing this. <laughs> they're not doing, they can't actively do this. Yeah. It's just so cool it's, to think about. But it's about. hard for us to kind of, I think it's hard for yeah. us, our minds to think about. But it's not inanimate. It like that. Right. Sorry. <laughs> this is just, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And it's, yeah. it's, it is such a unique place because everybody wants to be able to categorize things. And yeah. what is a virus has been so hard to characterize and categorize for so long that we've been scared of it. I have a different favorite question. Yeah. 
What do you like best about viruses? That's, yeah. how, that's how I want to phrase it. What do you like best about viruses? <laughs> I'd say, even, even though um, these auxiliary metabolic genes that I'll re-describe in a second are uh, not super abundant and they probably aren't just like driving all of biogeochemistry, I think the existence of auxiliary metabolic genes, meaning these things like the photosynthesis gene that I described earlier, that viruses have hijacked from host cell machinery and can basically um, do teeny parts of metabolism during the infection cycle, that by far is the coolest thing about viruses. Whether it has a massive ecological impact or not, I think it's awesome. Hijacking metabolism. Yep. Right on. Yep. Hashtag. That's one. Hashtag <laughs> hijack metabolism. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I think that's all the time that we have. Yeah. Uh, we want to thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us thank today. You. This was such a great lovely. conversation. Thank you. So thanks for being Pretty here. Pretty fun. Yeah. yeah thanks well, for thank being you here. guys. My pleasure. Something so small can be so influential, so much that it could change the course of evolution and history. Big things really do come in small packages. This episode of Radio Bio is brought to you by Morgan Quayle and Jackie Shea and was produced by Ann Deep and edited by Sonia Vargas. The artwork was created by Kinsey Brock. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.